0: Greetings Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 236. Right now I am staring up at the Montauk Point Lighthouse. I'm actually in my car in the parking lot outside of the lighthouse and I probably look pretty strange because a lot of people are looking in the window, but we push on. So I drove out to the East End today from Brooklyn to go to Amagansett. As a point of reference, It's in the Hamptons about 25 minutes from the end of Long Island before you're out into the ocean where I am now and like two and a half hours from New York City by car. I was out there to go to grain surfboards. Grain was founded in Maine, but my guest today, Brian Chopfer, he runs the shop here in Amagansett. What they do is they make surfboards out of wood by hand and they do so in a sustainable way where they limit or entirely eliminate any sort of waste that they may create in making their surfboards and they repurpose the scraps and any excess wood and they're doing things by hand the hard way with love and you know that I love that. So it was a real treat to get to see their facility in Amagansett and to talk to Brian both about his personal journey and about what Green Surfboards does. So I'm happy to bring this one to you. I'm kicking around today out in uh, Montauk, in the Hamptons. I just stopped by the Boneyard, where I guess they were, they're were they owned by Wellbone Magazine, which is an awesome magazine. If you don't know it, check it out. I just picked up a couple of copies there. And they have a really cool outdoor area. They're on Lake Montauk, I guess it's called, right? It's out here in Montauk. So it's a really cool setting. And I'm going to the brewery now and a couple other places. And then I've got a day and then I'm going to Honduras. I don't know what the internet situation is going to be when I'm there. So I don't know. Maybe an episode will come to you from Honduras, maybe not. But I know that I'm definitely at least recording one. So within a week, week and a half, you should expect to see that one. But for now, enjoy this conversation with Brian Schopfer.
1: Um, So were you still doing stuff like uh, remotely during COVID or were you just...
0: Yeah, so initially like when COVID first happened, um, I was like thriving with this. Yeah. And it made sense, like everyone was home. So I was like, hey, let me use this to my advantage. Like mm-hmm. people in bands that I really love that normally probably wouldn't say yes to me are stuck at home or looking to do something creative. And so I was crushing it, mm-hmm. uh, but it's, it's not the same. Right. The, person, the point yeah. is being on the road. Mm-hmm. You can't control for audio so well. Um, there's a different feeling when you're in a place Uh, I love the setting that I'm in. Every single time I record, it's different. Mm -hmm. So I've been in basements on the sides of highways. This is my first time in a shop, in a very cool shop. (laughs) Uh, So like that gives me something intrinsically. So um, how how bad was it out here?
1: Oh, you know, it was like, um, you know, there was a lot of fear going on at the very beginning just because you know, we all heard about the city getting hammered and then everybody was coming out this way and, you know, and nobody knew what was going on. And then we were all out of toilet paper and then it was just like, then all the food was gone and it was just like, yeah, so it was kind of a crazy time just because, you know, it was just
0: so much fear of people not knowing. I would Uh, think maybe, and I'm probably wrong in this thinking that, your industry might have been one of the more successful ones because surfing can be solitary. It's outdoors, and like maybe people were thinking, I can still do something outdoors, and yet that would be surfing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we so we were closed for two and a half months, um, and that time was actually that time was pretty good. You know, mm-hmm. we I think everybody got to connect with their families and just like their loved ones, whoever you know. Everybody was outside hiking a lot, biking. Um, surfing um so even though it was kind of like everything was shut down and there was like a lot of fear around like people were also like kind of reconnecting with what's important which Mm. you know I I think that changed a lot of people's lives because you know you realized what was important and it's not like the nine-to-five office job it's like connecting with your kids like um so yeah so we actually had a pretty good year for for business just because like people were loving to to surf, to skateboard. People were looking just for projects to do like, um, so yeah, we had, we had a pretty good year.
0: There's an interesting duality to me, or at least in the way that I per, uh, perceive the East end of Long Island. So I'm kind of lumping like Hamptons and Montauk mm-hmm. all together. I guess I'm against it's technically part of the Hamptons. Yeah.
1: I mean, I didn't grow up out here. I grew up in Colorado. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of people refer to the Hamptons as anything from, like, Southampton out. Like, even, okay. even Montauk, like, Montauk used to be just, like, the fishing village that was, like, a little bit further on. But now it's, I guess, being Hamptified. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think for, you know, for a lot of the people that, like, that, you know, that I've met that, like, grew up out here and live out here year-round they don't really refer to it as the Hamptons. It's like you say the town that you're
0: in. Yeah. I guess what I'm thinking is that, again, in my in the way that I perceive things, the duality would be people think of the Hamptons as, oh, celebrities will go out there to party, and there are very large homes. Martha Stewart has a home out here. Um, whoever, Christy Brinkley. Uh, that's where like the wealthy go to play. But then at the same time, what I've been finding through messaging people is there's – amazing things happening in the arts and crafts and sustainability from using kelp as fertilizer to sustainable oyster farming. Uh, And those two things to me at least seem to be existing side by side. Have you found that like there's something with being out here that fosters that sort of creative and artistic community? Um, I don't know if it's just proximity to water. Yeah,
1: I mean, I would say, like, you know, living in a place that is just so beautiful and, and there is water everywhere. And, frankly, there's just a lot of unique and oftentimes successful people that make their way out here. So, that, mm. that you know, there's a lot of, you know, personal connections that you can make with, you know, lots of different people. Like, we always, you know, we say, like, you never know who's going to, like, come in the shop and be dressed in blue jeans. It could be whoever, you know, it's like (laughs) I've met some cool people here like that, you know, are just normal people that you wouldn't really realize like how, uh, you know, you know, what a big deal they are, Mm -hmm. you know, out, you know, in the business world or whatever or the arts world or, you know, creatives, you know. So I think that a lot of people that live here year-round, there are a lot of artists. It's a vibrant artist community. You know, the problem... And it's just gotten worse with COVID is just that, you know, the price of real estate has gone up, the rents have gone up. So a lot of the uh, the folks that are not super wealthy are just getting kind of squeezed out of this place, which is kind of a bummer. I've only been here for six years, um, but it's definitely a challenge that I'm seeing. And, you know, it's kind of a bummer. Um, but I mean, I, I see people whose like grandparents grew grew up out here and you know, and they're getting squeezed out. And I mean, that's a, that's a real bummer.
0: Yeah. It's a, I guess a familiar story to Brooklyn and the city as well. Um, it's weird. I, I've noticed that a lot through doing this podcast that like artist enclaves become popular and then real estate goes up and then the very people who like help to make the area popular get squeezed out and go somewhere else and start anew. Uh, But I'm not trying to be overly negative. I'm super excited about the things that are happening out here, Mm -hmm. uh, including what you guys are doing. So before I get to that, you mentioned you grew up in Colorado. So I'm assuming you didn't grow up surfing.
1: No, uh, nope. I grew up uh, skiing and then snowboarding. Um, Yeah, my parents still live at the house I was at since the fourth grade. It's at like 9,000 feet, you know, lots of snow. Uh, You know, and I... You know, I did a bit of swimming, and we did some coastal vacations, but never really surfed. Actually, the first first wave I really caught was in uh, Hawaii on my honeymoon. Um, my wife and I went went there, uh, and I in Waikiki and I uh, was just walking down the beach and saw somebody renting boards and took it out and just basically paddled out as far as I could till my arms couldn't go anymore mm. and then just turned around and rode it all the way in and and that was that was it I was kind of a big um, sailor at the time I was living in uh, Newport and so I was really enjoying the um, you know, the wind and boats and stuff, because that was something that I'd never really experienced. I basically, after I finished college, I moved to North Carolina for a short bit, that, but then made my way up to New England uh, and stopped in Newport, Rhode Island, where I met my wife and, you know, ended up staying the winter, and then, then that's it. You stay for the winter, you're going to stay for the summer, and we were there for 16 years, and and so that was... That was kind of like my real introduction to the ocean.
0: So you're like a commercial sh- commercial sailor. Were you shipping things or?
1: No, I. Uh, um, well, I, I won an essay contest uh, from a sailing magazine. Whoa. Uh, and so the essay contest was for Blue Water Sailing Magazine. They were giving away six spots for a sailboat race around the world. And you just and. Uh, So my essay was basically about the fact that I came from Colorado and just have recently fallen in love with the ocean and would love to do the race, and I
0: I won. Did you know how to sail already? I knew a little
1: (laughs) bit about sailing, yeah. Like a a friend of mine that actually I was visiting up in Rhode Island, he had a 22-foot sailboat, so we were, you know, we were sailing around doing crazy, stupid things (laughs) in a sailboat. And so we got... um, yeah, so we, like I, I, was, I was very much falling in love with the ocean and sailing. And so once I got that opportunity to do the sailboat race, then kind of everything changed. Uh, I started teaching sailing. I was doing sailboat deliveries back and forth from the Caribbean. My wife and I lived on a boat for six months and traveled down the coast of America through uh, the Bahamas, Turks and Caicos, Dominican Republic. So Whoa. that was kind of a, yeah, so I, I was like ready to get my captain's license and uh, we were going to try to sail around the world. Um, but then, you know, I was working uh, I was also working on a vineyard at the time. Uh, and I, we got offered the job to live on the vineyard and be caretakers. So we looked at that opportunity as a great way to start our family. And, and that's what we did.
0: How did you do in the race?
1: Uh, <laughs> we came in fifth out of six and the sixth boat did not finish because they, we sailed through hurricane at the end. And, uh, Oh, so nice. they ended up turning on their engine. We did We did make it in, but um, we kind of got uh, sidetracked by the hurricane and uh, got pushed up to Nova Scotia, and so we... But it was quite the adventure.
0: It so was, if you turned on your engine, I guess you were out?
1: Yeah, that's... Even
0: yeah. with a hurricane?
1: Yeah, that's those are the rules, yeah.
0: Was that terrifying? Um,
1: I, you know, I was young and naive. <laughs> I wasn't that terrified. There were definitely some folks on the boat that were pretty freaked out, but... Uh, I I thought it was amazing, just like seeing like all the power. And we were, you know, there were fifteen of us on the sailboat, and it was a steel hold, and we had like professional crew, and you know, there were two professional crew with us, um, and uh, we were also being followed by the the Royal Navy, mm. Britain, and the you know the Coast Guard. You know, everybody knew where we were, so it wasn't, you know, obviously if something went bad, it, you know, you're still in the middle of the ocean, but. Um, no, I was never, you know, I wasn't that terrified. I think now would be a different story. Yeah. Our-
0: yeah. <laughs> I'm following this guy right now. His name is Sam Holmes and he's sailing from, I think, Florida across to, he just signed it like, not Ibiza, so uh, some Spanish Island. Hmm. Um, and he's like, sort of like live streaming in onto like Facebook live or whatever, and it looks like in a movie like The Perfect Storm or something, when he went through a storm, where there's just like this wall of wave. Did you <laughs> experience that? At well,
1: all? so so the the hurricane hit at night, um, so he couldn't really see anything, um, and so that was at that point, you know, the captain and the mate they like got us through the night, and then in the morning, uh, I remember they passed off the. Um, the helm to us and I was like the first one to take the helm and it was just like we were doing 30 minute shifts rather than like two hour shifts and it was pretty intense just I mean it was like it, it reminded me of like driving through like the foothills like mm. of Colorado like you could see you would just drive down this hill and you're going pretty <laughs> fast and then you hit the bottom and the nose dives into the wave and then it shoots all this water back at you so you're just getting soaked and then You pull, the nose pulls out, and then you just start climbing up the wave, and then you get to the top, and the top was amazing because there were all, you know, there's so much sea spray up there, and so there were rainbows everywhere. There were birds, like, playing, like, in the wind. So it was, like, I mean, that was amazing. Like, I'll never forget what that looked like. And then you get to the top, and you'd see that, and then you go back down again. And so it was just this cycle of wave after wave that was maybe, like, 20 seconds from like the peak to the trough back to the peak so and then by the time you finished your 20-30 minute shift you were just exhausted just from holding on and just from the pressure of knowing that you know everybody was kind of relying on you not to like screw up.
0: (laughs) That is wild. Have you written at all like besides that contest because this sounds like something fascinating. Uh, You know
1: yeah it's like during COVID I was thinking about writing a book but uh then I got busy again.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's it's on my list. I don't know if it's going to be for my kids or what, but
0: yeah. Is there anything from the six months of traveling by boat that that sticks out in your mind as particularly memorable? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, so many things. Like the Bahamas were just amazing for the, the water. You know, it's like the, the landscape of the Bahamas was pretty kind of boring, you know, it's just mm. like not much grows there. It's all like coral. But then when you get underwater, it's amazing. But I remember coming from the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos is very similar and sailing to the Dominican Republic, which is very lush and mountainous. Like you could smell the land. You know, we, we sailed over there at night and I just I'll never forget like that smell of just like life teeming. Um, That's amazing. So that was really cool. And just like all the people in the Dominican Republic and... You know, frankly, the people everywhere. I mean, it was a great opportunity. Like we were, my wife and I were thinking we would do that with our kids sometime, but uh, it hasn't really come together as of yet. And we've had some good adventures with them, though.
0: Well, maybe in a couple of years, I'll check yeah. back in with you, yeah. and we'll we'll do a part two, and uh, yeah. we'll catch up with that. Uh, okay, so I, I've done a bit of research about surfing. I'm no expert at mm-hmm. all, uh, but is it true to say that traditionally? Like, originally, surfboards were made out of wood.
1: Yeah, uh, so in Hawaii, the first surfboards were solid wood. Um, And so the royalty had, you know, giant boards that were up to, like, 160 pounds. Like, and the, you know, and then there were uh, lias and pipos that kind of the common folk could use, which were, like, you know, regular-sized surfboard Mm. or boogie board. Um, But, yeah, they were all solid wood, and then... I think um, it it was Thomas Blake.
0: Yes, I have this in my notes, actually.
1: Thomas Blake was, um, he was from Wisconsin. Uh, Interestingly enough, he lived in the same town that my grandparents grew up in, in Wisconsin. Yeah. And so he met Duke, uh, um, the Duke in an airport in Detroit or something, and just like, fell in love with the story, and then made his way out to Hawaii, and he was just a real innovator. He was the first one to put a fin on a surfboard. Uh, he started making hollow wooden surfboards, you know, for paddling, uh, and they became real important for life-saving, you know, for lifeguards to paddle out to rescue people. He was also one of the first to make an underwater housing. So, So there were kind of like hollow wooden surfboards that he was like kind of like huge in producing but then shortly after that like the surfing craze started to catch on and styrofoam came about and it's just a much cheaper way to do it even with all the environmental
0: problems of that and that the popularization came after like um people were stationed in the pacific during world war ii is that true uh
1: yeah it was kind of like yeah i think like the 40s and 50s is where it started started to come together uh you know, and once it made its way to California, I mean, it was like, you know, obviously it was kind of born in Hawaii, um, and, you know, just started to make its way to California. And then once California surf scene took off, that's really when the whole thing, you know, exploded.
0: And that, that plastic, I guess, like polyurethane, Is the idea there that it's like cheaper and easier to mass produce and that's why there was a transition?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think the mass production of, you know, styrofoam Mm. wrapped in fiberglass was, you know, they were cheap and you, you know, you can make a bunch of them like quickly rather than, you know, these boards that we make, you know, they take between like 40 and 60 hours to make. But, you know, they're built to last. They're way more durable and they're prettier and they're, you know they're much more environmentally yeah. responsible.
0: Oh yeah, I was going to ask if you knew sort of uh, like for the the polyurethane or the plastic boards what like the lifespan of that would be.
1: Well, I guess it depends on the surfer. Yeah, really. that's true. <laughs> because like some people can, you know, if you take it out in wild conditions, you know, I've I know people that have gone through like two or three boards in a day just because you know, the conditions are heavy and they're putting themselves into like a, you know, a deep wave. Mm. Um, you know, we haven't had any of these boards really break that couldn't be fixed. Um, which is, you know, a testament to the construction, you know, it's, you know, they, if they do like crack and break, they'll, you know, they'll fill up with water, but you can just drain them out and then they're wood. So you can like mm. clamp them, glue them back together. Sometimes if a piece is piece of wood is shattered. You just put in a new piece of wood and, so we have uh, a lot of these boards have gone through multiple repairs. Um, but as far as how long, I mean, people have like some of like the original like classic shapes um, like in foam that, you know, are 50 years old. Like it just depends like, you know, if it was just sitting in somebody's garage or on their wall for mm. a bunch of years.
0: With the hollow construction, is is the idea that, or in practicality, is it easier to maneuver? Is that why? Um, no,
1: no, not necessarily. Uh, no, I, I think that, uh, you know, they're a bit more rigid uh, and a little bit heavier. So you got mm. a little bit more momentum on the wave. But, um, you know, as far as maneuverability, that that more has to do with, like, the shape of the board. Um, you know, what your fin construction is, like, you know, how you know, how much displacement you have, how long the waterline is, uh, how sharp your rails are. That is more of like the defining factor of of how, you know, board, you know, reacts.
0: Okay. H- has the shape, I guess, in style and length changed over time due to like certain styles having more popularity?
1: Definitely. Uh, definitely. You know, that's a real interesting <laughs> thing to kind of like follow is just like the history of surfboard shapes. You know, they used to be, all long boards and then, mm. you know, thing, they got progressively shorter, you know, and then uh, uh, Steve Lis came out with the fish shape. He was in, uh, I think he was writing them as like knee boards. And then, you know, then the, uh, the thruster came about in the 80s, which is like three fin. Um, you know, now they're making, I mean, they've been making them for a bit, like asymmetrical boards, which are not, you know, like they're, they're made for like a specific wave or a specific break. Because if, it, if it's always, if you're always going left at your specific break and, and you like the way, you know, you can make a board that only goes left, you know. So people, you know, there's, there's some crazy designs out there now that you can, you can see. I mean, a lot of those things are, you just can't really do that in wood. We've, we've done some, some funky things in wood, more, more the folks up in Maine, uh, which is where grain started. Um, I've seen some of the, you know, they get a little bit more experimental up there. But what we do is more based on, we've got an internal frame. So that is, you know, that's really where the magic is because it's got, uh, you know, the volume is kind of set, the the width, you know, the bottom contours. And so we're basically building around that internal frame.
0: Okay. Now in the many things that I heard you say you've done, I didn't hear you say anything to do with woodwork or craftsmanship. (laughs) Um so where in your evolution of skills and interests did that come into play?
1: Yeah, so my my grandfather was a craftsman. Uh he would always come he lived in Wisconsin but while we were living in Colorado whenever he would come visit, you know, we were always just building something, you know, either a, you know, a seat bench with storage or a pantry closet, you know, we it was always just kind of like fun helping him build things. Um I really got the bug while I was in Newport. I, I really wanted to work with a furniture maker, um, and so I had a friend, Jeff Soderberg, who who was a really like innovative guy. Like uh, he, he had some great designs, and I just offered to help him one day. And so I helped him for a few days, and then he was a kiteboarder, uh, kiteboard instructor, and he had like an injury, like ripped his finger, like. And he was getting ready for a big show and he called me up and he was like, I need you to like be my hands basically. And so I helped him get ready for the show. And then, you know, I ended up working with him for like three years. Um, And then I I guess the big change, so I gained, that's where I gained most of my skills. Um, And I was kind of doing finished carpentry, just like side jobs as well. Um, But then I think the big, uh, big opportunity I had was when I was living on, on a farm in Rhode Island. It was a vineyard and I was the property manager. And so I had a shop there and whenever we had a tree fall down, I would just pull the log aside, paint the ends and found a guy that could come out once a year and cut the lumber up. And so, I mean, there were some really old beautiful trees that, you know, I was happy that didn't get go to waste because they used to just have those hauled away. And so then all of a sudden I had access to all this incredible lumber. Um, um, really wide, thick boards. And, and so then I was able to make, you know, really kind of like my own designs and furniture.
0: And then I guess you transitioned from there to Maine or did you come here?
1: No, I was, I was actually still um, I was still living in Rhode Island and my brother-in-law who, who lives here in Amagansett, uh, he grew up in Maine and he was, he's a surfer. Uh, and so he was like, we should go do this together up in Maine at the grain shop. You know, he was like, "I'm surfer. I'm from Maine. You're a woodworker. Let's like have a weekend together and go build surfboards." And so we went up and did that. uh, God, that was almost like ten years ago, and we just had the best time and loved the guys up there. And so, you know, driving back from that trip, we were just talking about doing it again. And then we just started hatching the plan of like, well, if we could talk to those guys about opening a shop here, you know, I could still do the the furniture and, you know, we could expand into surfboards and whatnot. And so we talked to the guys in Maine and it kind of happened. So now it's like, you know, we've, our shop's been open for like six or seven years now, but it's like finally like, you know, all starting to come together with uh, surfboard workshops and we're doing programs for kids and, you know, the furniture's been great. And, you know, there's so much great design out here, architecture and uh, interior design. So it's like, I kind of feel like we're at the in the right spot,
0: you know? So you're still doing furniture and other craftsmanship in addition to working at Green, I guess. Yep.
1: Yeah, we uh, we do a lot out of the shop. Uh, We do the surfboard workshops, which is kind of like the heart of the business and we started up doing skateboard workshops as well uh, just because a lot of people, one, didn't have the time to do a a surfboard workshop and, you know, if you got friends visiting and, you know, everybody can build a skateboard. Mm. So, so that was something that we did shortly after we came, and and then you know we just started putting little furniture pieces. Like I, I just love building furniture, so I just started putting some of those things in the shop, and and now yeah, now we've got kind of a clientele that comes to us for custom furniture.
0: I don't think I was recording when I mentioned that uh, maybe now. Well, I guess towards the beginning of the pandemic, maybe I had someone on the podcast named Surfer Dan. He was the subject of a short documentary that had gotten picked up by like the Banff Festival. And he was super interesting because he surfs like Michigan and he's mm-hmm. surfing alongside like giant blocks of ice and he gets this crazy ice beard. And <laughs> I think I, I've heard
1: of Surfer Dan. Ah, like, yeah. He's a
0: wild, wild guy. <laughs> but it was like particularly interesting because I think a lot of people wouldn't think, oh yeah, this very cold climate up in the upper peninsula in, in Michigan and surfing. So I guess I'm... Obviously, I'm aware of what suits, but I wouldn't make a connection between Maine and surfing right away. Is there a big community oh, there? Oh,
1: yeah. Surfing's great in Maine. I mean, yeah. it's definitely cold up there. Um, you're not really getting any of the, the Gulf Stream. It's like that's Labrador current up there. So Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's so much coastline uh, and it's such a a varied coastline. So you've got lots of different you can take advantage of lots of different swell directions and wind directions. So you basically, when you're surfing, you're trying to balance like the swell uh, against the wind. So the wind will kind of hold up the waves. So, you know, a lot of Long Island is like south facing. So, you know, if, 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 the, if the wind and, the, and the, uh, the waves aren't right, you know, it's just not gonna be super clean. You know, whereas like a place like uh, like Hawaii or, California, you've got like a whole ocean of, you know, like the wind is blowing consistently towards a lot of those coasts. And so, and then storms like kind of pack, you know, you've got lots of space Mm -hmm. for storms and waves to build up. Um, so the Atlantic is, is a little bit hobbled that way because the weather usually moves from west to east. But, you know, if you get a a storm out in the middle of the Atlantic, it's going to, it's going to push weather towards the coast. Um, but depending on where that storm center is or where the wind is blowing from, if your coastline, you know, if you've got a variety of coastline, you know, as the storm moves, you can go to a different spot and surf. So it's like people, that's, I know that people up in Maine are really kind of like particular about their surf spots and protecting their surf spots. I mean, a lot of people are all over the world, but um, just because, you know, once you find a good spot, you you. You know, you don't want to like sh- necessarily share it with people. That's been my experience. I've, I've had with folks. <laughs> so,
0: and feel free to shut me down here because I was going to ask you is there a spot here that's best or is that like a, a locals only information? Well,
1: no, I mean, the, probably the best, you know, most consistent place to surf is Ditch Plains, which, you know, everybody knows about. So, and it's super crowded. So, um, Yeah, I mean, that's a good, I love surfing there in like the off season and like the winter, you know, even now though, it's still getting, it's a lot more crowded even than when I got here. Um, But the summertime, it's, it can be a zoo. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, no, I don't usually go there during the summer just because there's just so many people, you know, and if the waves are good, like, you know, there's enough spots where you can like hike in and, and find a place to yourself more or
0: less. What is it like out here in the off season? Is it pretty quiet or are there still a lot of people coming out? Um,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a lot quieter. Um, you know, we call like uh, the Tuesday after Labor Day is Tumbleweed Tuesday okay. <laughs> because it like, you know, it it gets quiet. Like all of a sudden you can tell that like the the roads have opened up. I mean, I think, you know, last year was different because a lot of people stayed because uh, of the pandemic. Uh, I guess it's TBD on what this fall will look like how many people will stay but um, September is typically the best time of the year to be out here because it's not super crowded Uh, the water's still warm you know long days you know it's just beautiful Like, so that's, that's kind of like the high point of living out here September and October
0: yeah I envy that a bit now I've been itching to like get out of the city for a year or something Um, okay. So, so looking around, people can't see this. Um, I'll take some pictures afterwards so people can maybe get a bit of of an idea, but I see boards and wood in various stages. Um, are you able to kind of, I guess, uh, in summation of the process, like tell me how we get from untouched wood to finished piece? Yeah, so, um,
1: I mean, I guess we'd start with the surfboards. We start with, like, a one-inch plank of wood that we resaw, basically cutting it in half, like, lengthwise, so then you have two half-inch thick pieces of wood, uh, a little bit less than that. And so then those pieces are then bookmatched, which is, like, they're a mirror image of itself. So we've got a lot of, like, bookmatched sets here, like, that are ready to be glued up, and so we're... You know, we're constantly just gluing up top and bottom planks for the surfboards. And, you know, that's like, that's fun. Whoever's gluing it up, you know, you get to be a little bit creative mm-hmm. and just like switch boards around and just making stuff look pretty. And uh, so we're getting ready to do a lot of that. You know, we've got some rough lumber here. Um, and then we've got like some some red cedar s- stringers, which are just decorative. Um, so. Uh, and then we've got some like art some some panels that are sanded and ready to um, to put onto the surfboards. Um, let's see what else? Skateboards. We've got a lot of skateboard material around right now. Um, we are we had a hard time finding maple uh, because of the pandemic, and also glue. We just had a glue shortage. Whoa. so so, I mean, we use like a waterproof glue. and the maple we get is from uh, you know, the Midwest where it's like it's got a good springy quality for skateboards. Um, So we just recently got kind of our uh, supply chain under control. So now we are kind of pressing skateboards like crazy. So, you know, we're doing two or three presses a day. So there's a lot of skateboard parts around. Uh, We've got a couple uh, side tables that we're working on. Um, Let's see what else we're
0: making. Well, if if they're for, so next to me is what looks to me to be Close to a completed surfboard, is there a mold, or like you always follow the same dimensions, or there's like um, imaging or something like that that you use to to create them?
1: Yeah, so we so it's really the internal frame. The boards are hollow, but they're built around a frame like like an airplane wing. Oh, okay. Um, So depending on which board we're making, we've got a specific frame set for that, and so we've got you know twenty plus frames to choose from or boards to choose from so uh that's really like it starts by putting together the frame and then you uh you basically uh, adhere that to a set of bottom planks that are already like glued together and sanded and cleaned up and then we're really just working on like building up the rails around and so we have like these tongue and groove uh, pieces of wood that fit together that allow you to kind of like roll the rail up along along the side so you get a nice tight joint but you can actually you know you can bend it around you know rounded part like the nose of the tail but you can also you know round it up the board as the board gets thicker it's a little easier to show than I guess to describe. No,
0: actually, that the the plane metaphor made a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, do do people ever request like very specific dimensions or like something customized just to them?
1: Well, yeah, the people definitely do. Um, it's certainly much easier to just go with one of our shapes mm-hmm. because you know we do have like a pretty good variety of shapes to choose from. Um, but you know, it's it, it's a little bit difficult to like take one of our existing shapes and make it like an inch wider, because to do that you have to expand each frame symmetrically. You know, you know the frames are basically eight inches apart. So, um, so if you want to make it like a little bit wider at the tail, you've got to you've got to make it like flow correctly, so it's not kind of mm-hmm. like wonky. Like in and, and making it symmetrical is you know, it's a little trickier Um, doing something out of a solid block of foam. You have a lot more leeway because you can just like make it as wide or as thick as you want. But it's, it's also for somebody that's never shaped a board. It's not as straightforward because, you know, keeping it symmetrical and getting the thickness right and the rocker right and the bottom contours and rail shapes. So a lot of that guesswork uh, we take out of it with you know, like the process that we do it. So, for somebody that's never shaped a board, you know, it's going to come out more or less, you know, good. Uh, so that's important to our students when we do our workshops.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about workshops. So, it I I got the the sense through reading the, the website and kind of like in the about section, it's almost like a mission statement for the company that you're happy teaching other people this craft and that mm. you hope it continues and that you're not trying to, like, sort of, like, monopolize the the wooden surfboard game. Um, I was wondering about that mindset and how that connects to sustainability and, I guess, like, why? It, it's It's easy to be greedy and, you know, a lot of times businesses will always just think about the bottom line rather than, like, doing what's good and what's right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, like... I mean, it's a feel good type thing. Like we love having our students come in it. like they are, you know, they are stoked when they have finished a board that they built themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like you you may, you know, if I sold you a surfboard that I made, you know, you very well could love it. but if if you built it yourself, like you're definitely gonna love that board. like, um, it's just like anything that you put your kind of like heart and soul into it. It's just like so that's really what we're teaching people. It's like how to. You know, we're giving them the skills to build something that they love.
0: Mm. Yeah. Do people reach out to you, like, far and wide, like, internationally, all over the States?
1: For sure. Um, now, Grain started up in, in Maine, so, like, they, you know, they've shipped, uh, we've shipped boards all over the world from the shop there. I, I know we've, you know, Australia and, like, the Middle East and, middle you know, East. South America. Like, um, yeah, we've shipped boards uh, to Costa Rica to Hawaii I mean yeah we're we've definitely and we also do kits that's another thing we do we'll we'll ship all the parts plus a manual um and so yeah we we are not shy of like sharing like how we build it you know we do ask people not to like photocopy the manual and sell it right. or you know try to start the same thing but we all we are also um constantly like evolving and expanding like the technology that we use like you know, there really is quite a bit of technology that goes into these boards. Like when our students come here, it's all hand tools and, you know, we're working outside. And uh, But, you know, kind of like the back end has like a lot of technology in it that we're constantly uh, improving upon.
0: Hmm. Wow, I, I was like thinking in my head, where in the Middle East? I guess maybe like the Persian Gulf or part of the Indian Ocean or something. Yeah,
1: I forget. I'm not sure... Uh, If it was like, if it was a decorative project, I'd have to ask. uh, Oh, okay. I remember I was talking to John about it, but they sent, uh, I forget, I think it was like Abu Dhabi they sent a board out to. So I don't know if there are waves out there. Like I've never been out there myself. It's like, who knows? Maybe somebody's got a wave pool that I don't know about.
0: Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I I've heard about like cloud seeding and stuff there. So I'm sure they can also create waves. Yeah, I mean, people
1: are surfing behind boats. People are surfing in rivers. Yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah. Uh, I read online that even so, like, there, there's really no waste. Even like the, sh- the extra shavings and those get utilized. And
1: yeah, so waste no waste is like something that we try to adhere to. Um, you know, we pretty much since we've started at our shop here, we've we we've only do like really one big bag of trash a week. Mm. Um, you know, we recycle everything uh, that we can. Um, and then we reuse, like, all the little piece, pieces of wood. So anything that comes off of, uh, you know, like this, the surfboard planks that we've cut up, we, you know, reuse that for the little parts that we use inside of the surfboard. Or we make little mini surfboards out of those pieces and give them to the kids. Uh, you know, all the shavings, you know, we, you know, if somebody's making a board, we'll give them the shavings if they want, you know, for their fire pit. Or I've given them to friends who have chickens and they lay them out for their chickens to lay their eggs in. It's like, so we're, I've got a, got a friend who's got a composting toilet and he takes all of our sawdust. So yeah, we're, we're happy to just see things get used rather than thrown away. And I think that was like the big problem with, you know, surfing culture, you know, of the like 80s, 90s and 2000s is like, you know, all the surfboards, if you break it, it's just like there's nothing really you can do with it. So it just gets thrown away. And so kind of that throwaway culture
0: is, you know, just something we're trying to move away from. Oh, yeah. And that's that transcends surfing, right? That's everything. Yeah. We're at a really interesting point right now, actually. I think it, culturally and maybe globally where in a way we're returning to things that are more traditional Um even when I look out here, like I'm wearing the Amber Waves hat and they mm-hmm. do like community gardening, uh, which is sort of like a reaction to industrial agriculture and like the waste that that can produce. So it sounds almost like that community here is kind of interconnected if you're working with other people in other industries that are sort of like-minded in terms of creativity and sustainability maybe.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. And in, in back to your early question of... Uh like w- what's living out here like, and, you know, that there are creative people. It, I, and I think a lot of that comes from living in a beautiful place, mm. um, you know, just wanting to take care of it. And so, and whether or not that's what brings people out here or that comes from people being out here, you know, who who knows? Like, but I think that having that um, kind of like love and respect for the environment and just like the natural world, Um inevitably leads to having a certain amount of that kind of like change the your behavior and mm-hmm. how you uh, and how you use things and what you throw away and, and what you
0: i I did a, an episode maybe six months ago with two women who started a project in New York City called the coffee project and I'll use that as sort of like the metaphor for whatever or the example of what I was talking about. In returning to things that are not necessarily mass produced, you're going to, in my opinion, or maybe even objectively, like get a better product. You're often going to pay more uh, because it's sourced possibly ethically or it's handcrafted and there's more time that goes into it. There's no corners cut and it's not a cookie cutter of everything else in in the way that, you know, factory machines can just pump everything out. Uh, and so I had talked to them about, well, you know, you're selling your coffee at $5 versus like you could go to a bodega and get one for a dollar. It's probably going to be burnt coffee and not be that good. Like how do we sort of like get everyone included in in the price point? You know, it maybe would be cheaper for me to go get a polyurethane surfboard. But is the idea though that like, yeah, but you're probably over time going to pay for like five of those polyurethane surfboards because, they're not going to be uh as um structurally sound as durable thank you versus like something that they'd be getting from you guys
1: yeah i mean boy that's a that's kind of a big it's loaded i'm not trying to put you on the spot
0: but i see this as (laughs) as an important trend like that this this returning to things that are more homemade but i I also do recognize that, like, it's hard economically right now for people.
1: Yeah, you know, and uh, I think that so much of, like, what people have been buying and using for years was just mass-produced and cheap and, you know, made in China. And, and, like, it's cheaper to just buy a new one than to fix it for a lot of these things. And, you know, I think, honestly, looking at so many items that are in our lives, like, if you... uh, what's a, an example, like a radio or a toaster or something. You know, you can buy a toaster for like $19. Mm. But if you look at all the different parts that are in there, it's like you could never like make a toaster for $19. Right. It's like, <laughs> That's a good point. No way. It's like, so I mean, mass production is great in that now everybody's got a toaster. But uh, yeah, I mean, the toasters aren't as good as when, you know, Bob's toaster shop like was pumping out a hundred a week. You know, it's like... um So I think, like, I think definitely people are appreciating the quality and craftsmanship of like a handmade or, you know, just not a mass produced, you know, um, so that, you know, people are finding it, but frankly, a lot of people, you know, that's why the loaded question, like the economic realities of the world are that not everybody is going to be able to afford a handmade surfboard or, uh, you know, a toaster that will last them a lifetime. It's, it's, um, and I don't know how you solve that. Um,
0: Yeah. Well, I think there's also how you you mentioned earlier sort of the appreciation for something handcrafted, whether you're doing it or some you know, or the fact that you know that the place that you're getting it from put in the time and the effort and had, you know, a good mission statement. I saw that you guys or, or some of your boards had artwork that was like sort of, burned into it.
1: Yeah, the artwork's fun. Yeah, It's beautiful. Yeah, we have, um, you know, there's a lot of great artists that we use out here in our shop in Maine. There's a lot of great artists up there. So we've seen some fantastic art come through. Uh, I I was just, I'm just reminded of, uh, I just went surfing with a friend who had found a sand dollar that he had for years. And so he wanted to somehow embed his sand dollar into the surfboard. So we... We built, like, before we put the top planks on, we uh, just glued some extra wood in there where he wanted, and so we drilled through the top planks, painted it kind of, like, sea green, and then sunk the sand dollar in and poured epoxy over it. So it's just, like, this sand dollar is just kind of, like, floating inside of his board. So, like, I just saw it out with him the other day. Um,
0: you got to throw a picture of that online. That sounds oh amazing. Oh, yeah,
1: and i got to re-put it back up there because, yeah, I put it up there when oh, I okay. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're really li- limited by your imagination. I'm always impressed with some of the, the ideas that, uh, that people have to put art on their boards. You know, the art the, our boards are beautiful on their own. I'm a wood guy. Like, I almost prefer just to see the natural wood. But, you know, some of the, some of the art that people want to do, it, it, it really accentuates, like, the look of the board. And it makes it unique. And it, you know, flows with their personality. And so the, you know, that's, that's kind of a fun fun thing, you know, that people get to do.
0: Yeah, where do you see the company in the future? Is there a five-year plan or like a, a way that you think this is going to evolve? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, people
1: really people really love to build things, you know, even if they haven't really built things before, like, you know, that's the one thing that I have seen you know, we get people in here who say, well, I've never really done anything. I haven't used the tools, but it's like, you know, after after they kind of get the bug of just like making things, it's like they, they, you know, they don't want to like go back to the way that it was. Mm. Like people really like that kind of creativity. And I think finding that um, in yourself is, you know, kind of the best gift that we can give. So I, I mean, I think we'll just keep doing what we're doing because it's, you know, you know, we're not gonna hit everybody with what we're doing. I mean, we're we're only doing, you know, a hundred, couple hundred boards a year. So it's, you know, we're not like a, we're never gonna be a mass production type company. Um, so five years from now, boy, who knows? Me?
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I think this is. Um- really special. It's unique to me. It's really cool to be here. So I'm appreciative of that. So again, thank you. Uh, before I close out, uh, you are the first person, I believe that's been on here. Yeah. To represent, I guess like the East end of Long Island. Uh, there will be a few after you now, but, um, so I wanted to pick your brain for, for one or two things this morning. I went over again to, to Amber waves and had, uh, like a breakfast bowl there. Um, they have like a really beautiful sort of like sitting garden area before you get out to the farms uh if you go out in the morning for a, an early um surf session and you come back where are you getting breakfast around here
1: um well my normal spot would be Goldberg's mm-hmm. uh great bagels uh and after You know, I usually don't have breakfast before I surf because you get kind of crampy out there. So I'll have like, you know, maybe a little like a banana and uh, like a cup of coffee, but then you're pretty ravenous by the time you, you know, it's like 11 o'clock or whatever and you haven't had anything to eat and you just like had like a monster workout. So yeah, uh, nice big bagel with uh, eggs and cheese and hash browns and sausage, all that good stuff on there.
0: Nice, nice. (laughs) Where are you going uh, for a beer around here?
1: Uh boy, for a beer. I like to go over to the brewery. Yeah. Uh, Montrock Brewery is, is a great spot. Those guys are awesome.
0: Awesome. All right, and last one, uh, one dinner spot. Someone comes in for 24 hours. Uh,
1: I kind of like um, Coche Commodore. It's kind of like this, like, it's uh, like a Spanish, um, like, Mexican food. Um, and it's just got a really good vibe in there. Yeah. Um, yeah, good food. It's close. It's just you know we could we could walk or skateboard there from here.
0: Sweet. And I'll I'll throw out. Uh, I don't know if she's there or they are there more than just weekends now. But you mentioned Ditch Plains, so Ditch Witch is, uh, Ditch Witch is a Ditch is yeah food truck sort of uh, setup.
1: Yeah, they they are uh, Ditch Witch has been uh, on the beach longer than I've been here. So uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're uh, they're great, great. I mean, it's great food. You know, it's not just like fast food. Right. They really do quality food out of there.
0: Awesome. Uh, well, again, thank you. This is a, a real treat and an honor to talk to you and thank you for allowing me to share your story.
1: Yeah, thanks for the time.
0: Cheers. All right, Voyagers, that is a wrap on episode 236 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much, Brian, for having this conversation with me. And thank you to Theo, who also is uh, working at the shop there, who helped to set this conversation up. I appreciate you and the time that you put into this. Hope you guys learned something cool. Please go to the show notes or the description in whatever player you're using, and you will find a link to the Grain website and to their social media and all that good stuff. There will also be a link to my Patreon account, and you know that's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly and get some cool kickbacks. All right, I'm going to sign off for now. Hopefully you hear from me in Honduras. If not, you'll hear from me very shortly after, so... Thanks again, folks, and please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very soon.